people don't understand that the media is not just a media that gives us news. It's just like a PR company basically for big industry. So it could be big pharma, big food, big anything. They just, they pay for it. Not only do they pay for all the ads on it, they're the, they're the owners of it. You know, it's like, you just look at who owns this, who owns that, the media companies, they're all the same people. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Happy New Year, Bettys. All the best to you in 2022. All right. So in this first podcast of the year, I wanted to start it off with a bang. I think that there is a general fatigue, if you will, a malaise that is uh, permeating through the population. I think that we are, at least for me, this is how I feel, kind of generally fed up with being lied to and generally um, taking back what is mine. And in that vein, and when I say mine, I mean my freedoms uh, and my ability to think clearly and critically for myself without listening to corrupt uh, politicians and the powers that be. And in that vein, I wanted to publish my conversation with Brian Saunders. He is the filmmaker behind the Food Lies documentary. He's also a podcast host. It is a top five uh, nutrition podcast. It's called Peak Human. He's an international speaker, uh, graduated from UCLA with a degree in mechanical engineering, and he is a health coach and has co-founded the health education company called Sapien. Uh, his work surrounds um, spreading the awareness of regenerative agriculture and increasing access to well-raised, humanely raised animal products uh, through his company called Nose to Tail. So yeah, it's going to be a banger, guys. So this is how we start off. We talk about Brian's origin story, like how he fell into this line of work. Um, we started talking at the beginning of our conversation around misconceptions around our ancestors and how they ate. Like, no, they didn't drop dead when they were 30 and what they actually ate. And we started from there, the conversation morphed into what our ancestors ate into what we currently eat. So the evolution of our diet, uh, we talk about the seven day uh, Adventists, we talk about Ansel Keys, we talk about saturated fat, uh, smoking, uh, fast food and convenience food. We talk about the vegan diet and the three pillars of the vegan diet and discuss some of the errors and the propaganda that's associated with them. And we also spend some time discussing the moral dilemma of animal death, um, because that's 
you know, an unavoidable part of being a meat consumer. Um, we move into an area of interest for me that I'm, uh, you know, as a mother of sons, uh, raising sons in an ever uh, increasingly toxic, both physical, chemical, and spiritual and emotional world around declining levels of testosterone and what we can do about it. Uh, protein consumption, uh, mTOR, which is a growth pathway, and then ways that we can improve your health. So yeah, we're starting off with some controversy um, and what might be considered, actually, I, should, I shouldn't say that. This should not be considered controversial. This should not be riddled with controversy. We should be able to speak freely about meat consumption and we should be able to speak around the infiltration and perversion of big food big pharma, and that they're just having an orgy with each other all the time and the propaganda with the mainstream media and how they are uh, manipulating what the general population uh, hears and as an extension of that, how the general population thinks. Uh, and yes, we talk about the fairy tale of how cow farts are warming up the planet. So um, I hope you enjoy this uh, first podcast of the year. And um, I am so appreciative for all of you that have been on this journey with me so far. I'm so excited to be in, entering into my third year. It's almost three years in September of 22 that we started the pod. So uh, without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Brian Saunders. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause, and there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Brian Sanders, I am just thrilled to welcome you to BETTER. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this stuff. Yeah. And I reached out to you over uh, Instagram. I've been following you for a while. You have very strong meme game. And mm -hmm. um, I wanted to talk about some of the issues that you post about uh, quite frequently around uh, more of like a ancestral or sapien diet, how we have some of the mixed messaging around meat, which we're going to talk about today, and some of the bad science really that we've been exposed to as a population and how that's really influenced policy and of course the decision of the, um, uh, of the populace. So uh, before we get into all that, I'm really, really excited. Uh, I thought it would be useful for my listeners if they are not familiar with your work, not familiar mm -hmm. with you to give us a little backstory. I mean, when you come to this kind of work, which is wrought with you know, controversy. Um, you know, we don't just land in like a pro meat or an anti meat. Like you don't just land there. So tell us how you came to this work, how this is, you know, why this is important for you and 
um, how you started and tell me a little bit about, you can also mention Food Lies, your documentary. Food that's coming as well. well, yeah. Wow. It, it, it found me. Yeah. I didn't find it. It found me. It kind of all just happens. And it started, I guess, when two things happened in my life. One, I turned 30 and I couldn't eat whatever I wanted anymore. A lot of people might have that same experience where, you know, you grow up in your teens and twenties and it doesn't really matter what you eat for some people at least. And then it does all of a sudden. So I had to, you know, take a look at what I was eating and how can I not get fat? Right. I, I was always a fit active person yet. I was growing around the midsection. And also the sad side of the story is around that same time, I lost both of my parents. And so they were following the food pyramid which we'll bring up, they were doing all the right things supposedly, and they both succumbed to chronic disease that is just normal in today's society, right? We, two things are normal. One is we just expect to get overweight. It's like when you hit 30, it's like, oh, wow. Yeah. Dad bod. That's so funny. You know, you have like a belly. It's so cute. No, it's not. It's a sign of disease. It's a sign of insulin resistance. And uh, then too, is we just expect to be on medications and get chronic diseases. And we expect that this is what happens. And this is because everyone I know is on medications and have disease. And that's just how it should be. That's crazy. That's crazy. If you travel around the world, this doesn't happen in other parts of the world where they don't have the same modern food systems and the same crazy stuff that we have in the US and other kind of more first world countries. So you have to understand that this isn't normal. It's, it's hard because if that's all you see, it becomes normal, right? Because everywhere you look, it's just like, oh, of course, you know, this is just what it is like to be a modern American. And yeah, you need to open your eyes to that, that that's not true. I really opened my eyes to all that. Didn't want to fall to the same fate as my parents. And then I started making my film called Food Lies. So it's been a four-year journey. So it's been an eight-year journey of my own health and research and reading books and going to conferences and, you know, doing all these things. But four years, it's been full-time when I started making the film, uh, just researching things, uh, interviewing top scientists and doctors around the world on film and on my podcast, Peak Human. And that's kind of my story. Yeah. I, I guess a little more about me. I grew up in Hawaii. You know, we, we had a good life. We were eating natural, you know, we were cooking our own foods. It wasn't like we were just going to McDonald's and all that stuff. And my parents weren't obese. They just had the classic belly or you kind of have this insulin resistance that goes undiagnosed, which is another thing we could talk about is how no one's checking for this stuff. You're not checking like fasting insulin levels and all this stuff. I mean, it's hard. Yeah. Doctors don't know about it. The tests are expensive. It's a little bit harder to do. Uh, a lot of this stuff just goes un undiagnosed, right? Even the CDC, who I don't like taking uh, health information from these big global and well, CDC is not global, but I'm thinking of the WHO and the UN stuff. These big organizations, they even admit that eight out of 10 people with pre-diabetes don't even know it. So they put right. this out, eight out of 10 people with pre-diabetes don't even know it. And there's also a study that came out that showed 88% of Americans are not metabolically healthy. And this is, this is just our normal society. So again, we were following the rules. We weren't going to McDonald's. It was a big treat to go out to eat. We were eating the low fat products and the low fat dairy and the, all the bread and the pasta and doing all these things. And they still ended up 
with Alzheimer's and cancer. And these are these chronic diseases that we don't have to live with. What I've found is that it's not normal in human life that you can go to different parts of the world. You can look at other cultures. You can look at other times of history. We did not get these uh, yet. They're normal today. And if you change your diet and lifestyle, you can not be doomed genetically, right? It's not that just because my family had these things doesn't mean that I'm going to get them. That's what I've found. And I've changed my life. I've lost three to four pant sizes since then. So I'm looking way better at 38 than I did at 28. I've, um, yeah, I've, I've gotten rid of so many things like allergies and joint pain and acid reflux and uh, inflammation in my joint, all these type of things that I was just living with went away by doing some simple changes in my life. So that's when I started to really decide I need to do something on a bigger level and, and going back to the food life film. So that's what, what I decided to just quit my job, go all in on the film. And that's what I've been doing ever since. It's interesting because when you say things like arthritis and joint pain and reflux and maybe insomnia and, you know, you have like your one or two pant sizes, these are nebulous enough that they can be dismissed usually in the allopathic model where it's like, well, it's aging. You know, you said you mentioned it as well with, you know, your parents and with society at large, we sort of say, well, that's what happens. It's common, you know, and this is, you know, one of the reasons why this podcast exists is to really nail, nail that lie in the coffin that it deserves to lie in, because it's absolutely not, it might be common. It is absolutely not normal. Um, but when you see it rampant, I think this is when we look at Western culture, of course, you know, we're going to draw a lot of American stats, but you know, I, I live in Canada. We are just your overweight cousins to the North. Like mm -hmm. it's just, it's the mm -hmm. same thing up here where we typically, um, we think that just because we can see it in the population at large, that this is something that just happens. And it's often that, um, this is one of the only cultures where we are on more drugs and more prescriptions than ever. And the patient is usually blamed. Like you mentioned genetics, right? It's like, mm -hmm. oh, it's your genetics. You know, you're, you know, you're APOE 3-4, like you're, you know, mm -hmm. you're destined to get Alzheimer's or 3-3. It just, it's just what happens. And of course we know, and we've had Alzheimer's experts here on the podcast, Dr. Dale Bredesen, uh, we've spoken to Dom, Dom D'Agostino, like many, mm -hmm. many uh, experts mm -hmm. in terms of how we can actually change the macronutrient composition of the diet, how we can incorporate fasting. Some of these ancient, uh, maybe more, um, uh, we'll call them more ancient wisdom, uh, if mm -hmm. you will, that uh, has been lost today. And in some ways, even, you know, uh, demonized, like, oh, fasting, that's like an eating disorder. Like mm -hmm. if you're if you're not eating from the moment that you wake up to the moment that you must have some sort of eating disorder. And we've, I've had friends who've written books about fasting and they get like all in the comments on Amazon, this is an eating disorder book. And it's like, mm. please, you know, this is what humans have done from the beginning of time. Um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about our ancestors and some of the misconceptions um, that we have about them. Because I think sometimes when we look at you know, we're going to talk about, you know, your sap like the sapien diet and sort of more mm. of an ancestral type of eating. And I think that some of the critique around um, 
ancestral or paleolithic type of eating is like, oh, well, these, you know, these people didn't live past, like most women died in childbirth. And like these women didn't, you know, these, these people didn't live past 30 or 40 anyway. Um, so what are some of the misconceptions that we have um, about our ancestors in terms of the way that they ate, the quality of their life and how they lived? Yeah, it's a good place to start. And I, I like looking into all this from all sides. I think part of my job is to look at things from all sides, or, or I've given myself that job, is because there's a lot of different camps. And I don't like to go in any camp. Like even the paleo is a camp. So I don't believe in all of paleo just because, like, oh, we can't eat dairy because paleo people didn't have dairy. Well, that's, that's not true for one thing. And also, you can eat raw dairy. It's like, you know, there's more context. This. If, if you, you can eat some like unpasteurized, like good A2 dairy, right? So there's a lot of context here. So, um, part of that context is just because ancient humans did something doesn't necessarily make it true, which is also interesting. So I'm not just like, oh, okay, well, we need to go back to caves and we need to just eat exactly like them. And that's it. It's like, no, they had ancient wisdom and they, humans are genius, genius, really. If you think about how smart we are now with all our computers, we were just as smart back then. We just didn't have the computers. We it were was all stored smart. up here. It was all in the brain. We were yeah. smart with our surroundings. Yeah. We knew our mm -hmm. nature. We knew the environment. We knew how to gain food and nutrition and live mm -hmm. and hunt. That's how we use all our brain power. And so there, there's so much ancient wisdom there, but then also we have modern science. So then maybe something that we did wasn't right. We can, we can now know that it's great. I hate cherry picking, but I love it in a certain way. When we get to cherry pick, what's the best from our past? And then what's the best from what we know from modern science? And then we can combine those. And now we can have the best possible way to live. So like fasting is a great example of, yeah. I mean, I just went to Africa actually to visit some hunter gatherer tribes for the film. They, they weren't, they weren't eating all the time. You know, they didn't have, you know, a grocery store. They went out and got food. You know, we met them, we went with the Hadza for um, three days and three different sort of variations of hunts. One was like an actual, like, you know, eight to 10 hour hunt where we pretty much just held them back the whole time. But uh, we tried, <laughs> we, 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 kept, we, we, you know, we kind of kept up, but they went out to get food and then they would come back and eat it. And then they would, you know, didn't have food for a while. And this, this is very obvious that, you know, they didn't have the whole foods with the 37 million, you know, cornucopia of fruits and vegetables shipped in from around the world. So part of the story is that humans, we, we developed a certain way. So it's not just that we evolved because to eat meat, it's we evolved because we ate meat, right? This powered our brain size. And I'm not, and I say meat as sort of a colloquial term for animal foods, right? It's a, the, it, all parts of the animal, any, any animal it could be seafood. It could be anything is, is what humans ate for so long. That part of the thing is the time scales. You got to look at the time scales. How, how many millions of years it took us to go from primates to humans and what, what drove those changes? It was eating animal foods. It was getting better access to higher quality nutrition. And this is hard because in society, people, animal foods are demonized. And it, it's really, really hard for me to just operate and do social media and just deal with all the trolls and all these commenters, like you're saying with the fasting commenters. I mean, all I get is commenters of just parroting this mainstream idea that meat is bad and that plants are magical. And it was kind of the opposite. I don't have a problem with plant foods. 
I, I watch out for anti-nutrients, which we can get into later because some plant foods have a lot of anti-nutrients and you want to watch out for certain things. But plant foods are fine. Animal foods are what built our human bodies and brains. That we got big brains because we had higher quality nutrition from animal foods and animal fat that made that allowed our guts, the the large intestine, the where the primates were fermenting, you know, they're eating all day. They had to eat all day and they had to ferment all this stuff in their large intestine. Our large intestine got a lot shorter and our small intestine got a lot longer. And the small intestine is where we digest the high quality animal foods. So now that allowed, it's called the expensive tissue hypothesis that allowed our brains to get so big. So we had more energy to use for our big brains. And there's all kinds of theories on why our brains grew that include, you know, hunting and social behavior and communication and all this other stuff. But it, but by getting higher quality animal nutrition, it allowed our small intestines to grow, our large intestines to shrink, our brains to get bigger. Our whole bodies are built around animal nutrition. So you don't have to be a carnivore, like some of my buddies, like Sean Baker, you know, these guys that Paul Saladino that are into, you know, but we are built for eating animal foods and the scientific record shows that I interview a lot of top archeologists, paleoanthropologists, all kinds of people around the world. You, they actually can show a decline once we stopped eating as many animal foods and started doing agriculture. And you can look at the remains of a human pre-agriculture, post-agriculture, the one after agriculture, when we started eating all these grains and relying on more just, you know, I'd say empty calories. We got shorter. Our brains got smaller. We had more disease. You can see that even in the bones and in the teeth, uh, life got worse. So really the, the plant-based paradigm is sort of at odds with the actual story of evolution in the human body. And I'll, I'll throw in two more quick things because you could go on forever about this stuff, but the, the, even the, the acidity of the human stomach, our, the pH of our stomach is very low. It's 1.5. If you look at the research, we're between, uh, we're right at a possum, which is another scavenger, and we're right in between eagles and hawks and falcons. So eagles and these are scavenging birds. They have 1.3 to 1.8 is their pH. Ours is a 1.5. So most scientists agree this is because we were in the very earliest days, three to four million years ago, scavenging carcasses and eating sort of rotting meat and getting what we could. And actually some of our best nutrition was from when we developed our first tools, the rock to uh, hit the crack open bones and get the bone marrow, crack open skulls to get the brain. This is what was left over when all the other animals pick through it. So being human is eating animal foods. We were built for it. Our stomachs are built for it. Our bodies are built for it. Our brains were built from doing this. And, oh, you, and you mentioned the age. So that's the other thing. We did not die at 35. Humans don't just keel over and die at 35, especially when they're eating natural foods. You look at anyone around the world these days that's still eating natural foods, like certain societies that's, that kind of just are outside of society more and don't eat the modern foods. They can live up to 100, 110. You know, there's people who lived up to 120. I've talked to some great scientists that say there's absolutely no reason we didn't live to 120 back then. Like we were eating natural foods. We had clean water. We had clean air. Why wouldn't we? we? We know now that humans could live this long. And yes, that we have some modern advancements like technology, but some of these people are healthcare technology. Some of these people didn't, who live that long don't have, they're not propped up by the medical system. Like a lot of these people just live a long time because they're so healthy and 
because they don't maybe get all the medical system uh, interventions. Uh, so also there's just the classic story of the infant mortality it is most people died before the age of five, actually. So the in childbirth, they die or, or just not making it to the age of five. So if you have most of your deaths happening before the age of five, then of course your average age could be 35 years old where they die, but that's not when well, the mean die. is different from the mode, right? Like mean we don't and mode is very different. I'm glad you said that because I looked up a study for the film and the mode, which is the most common age of death for the modern hunter gatherers that we can now study is between 70 and 78, 79 or 78. So, so the most common age of death for these certain people we can study that live like our ancestors did is between 70 and 78. It's not 35. And these are people who just still don't have modern healthcare. They don't have even basic stuff like clean water and, you know, the, just parasites and just stuff like that. So, man, yeah, there's just a lot of misconceptions out there. And humans, it's a story of thriving. My friend, Dr. Bill Schindler, who's a great paleoanthropologist and professor, he has said them enough to know they, they, they wouldn't reproduce that there's no way we would have got here as humans. If we were just surviving, if we were just living these short brutish lives, it, it's a story of survive of thriving. He says, it's that this is why we still exist. We had abundant food. We had, we figured out ways to, you know, even treat our own diseases. And yeah, basically that's why we're here today. Well, I think that this is also, you know, to your point around um, meat consumption, I think that meat consumption, maybe with the advent of fire as well, allowed us to eat more food, of course, more calories, allowed our brain to expand in size. But also, it also allowed us to ascend the food chain for us no longer to be the prey, but for mm -hmm. us to be, you know, the apex predators. I mean, if you look at females, like, you know, mo modern females, you know, it's, it's a mechanical miracle that we can run. Like our hips are so wide, but that's also because we are trying to, you know, if we're uh, becoming pregnant with a baby, it's, it's all the bait, like, and when it's all the baby's brain. Right. And of course, when the baby's born uh, you know, the biggest part of childbirth is of course, birthing the head, which is, and of course it's so big now to be able to fit through uh, the hip, like the, the skull literally has to like, cr like cr cross over each other uh, in order to make it through um, the birth canal and human babies, of course, you know, in some cases, you know, up until, you know, 40 years old, they're, <laughs> they're being cared for by their parents. <laughs> Whereas if you look at a you know, a deer or some other, you know, uh, uh, more prey type of animal, like they're born. And then within like, I don't know, five, 10 minutes are sort of up and jumping around. So I think that meat has also helped us to ascend, you know, with that increasing brain size, that increasing cranium uh, to ascend, to be an apex predator, to be at the top of the food chain and to be able to come up with, you know, innovative solutions like homes and barter systems and, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, animal husbandry and being able to control other animals as well. So I think that there's, um, I don't know if that lines up with, um, with some of the findings that, um, that you've had, oh, but yeah. or, that you've seen, but I think that it's really interesting that we are one of the only species where we have a really, you know, maybe safer, uh, elephants, but even elephants, you know, within a little bit of time, they're kind of up and walking like babies. Mm -hmm. You have, there's a lot of investment in, in a child 
a, a, a human child. It's like they don't walk, they don't do anything but breastfeed. And then it takes them about a year to be ambulatory in, in most cases. You know, it, no, that's a great point. And we did a lot of these things. We outgrew our capabilities in a certain sense. Like vegans will say, oh, we don't have fangs and claws, so we shouldn't be eating meat. But it's the same kind of story that you're saying here is humans and our ingenuity. And we, we've transcended what and our bodies have caught up with that, where we do a lot of the food processing outside of our body. So, yes, we don't we don't have fangs. But that doesn't mean we weren't eating a ton of animal foods. And, and actually, I forgot one study. There was a we look at the stable isotope of nitrogen and you could see that we were on the top of the food chain. We were the apex predators by the amount of protein we ate, by the stable isotopes of nitrogen that we could still test for. So we did this by processing food outside the body. We developed spears and knives and axes and we could throw rocks and we could ferment food. We could ferment plant foods so that it became more bioavailable and more uh, nutrient dense and you know, provide us more calories. We could cook food. We could do so many things, just cutting, even cutting food into smaller pieces is helping us gain more nutrition from it. So all these things that we've done have helped us gain that higher quality nutrition that all helped us become human and get these large brains. And yeah, I, I, we kind of like peaked out at like how big our brains could get by, you know, what's physically possible to give yeah. birth. Yeah. So let's, let's talk a little bit about, um, sort of the misconceptions you, you mentioned, um, veganism, which we'll, we'll just shelf for a moment because I want to talk, we're going to talk about veganism, but I also want to talk about how we got here because it seems like there is a very strong push for things like, uh, saturated fat. Well, we talk about this, you know, and we can talk about Mm. Ansel Keys perhaps as well. I want to talk a little bit about bad science, you know, like Mm. how we got here and, um, there's sort of these persistent myths. Saturated fat is bad. Salt is bad. Meat is, uh, you know, I remember, I think it was the WHO classified, I think it was bacon as like a class, class one, two carcinogen. Yeah. class two, thank you. Uh, class two carcinogen. How do we get here? Where, I mean, is there uh, manipulation of data? Are there external interests that have played into these mm-hmm. narratives um, and maybe we can, maybe Ansel Keys is a good place to start. Maybe you want to go back before that. Go a but, little further back. There, yeah. It's such a long story that there's so much to this. And I really do think there are big factors that have shaped how we think about food, because I don't see how it'd be possible if there weren't big driving influences with a certain agenda, because without those big driving influences, we would have just done what humans have always done. Even up until the fifties and sixties, we were yeah, we have a pot roast for dinner and we have vegetables and whatever else on the side and we're healthy. It's like, of course, like this was our trajectory for all of history. And so the reason why I know there was influence is how did that change and why did that change, especially knowing the science of that animal foods have superior bioavailable and complete nutrition. The only reason, the only way that we could have gone off our path for millions of years of always striving, all the cultures around the world, always striving for animal foods, more animal nutrition, even now in developing countries, they are always in search of more animal nutrition. This is what I saw in Africa. This is what you see in China, anywhere. They want always more. I'm working. I'm working in the field so that I can afford meat for my family. And so what changed? That's such a good question. What changed? Why, why would we all of a sudden deviate from this path of inherently knowing without even science, back in the day, we didn't have formal science. We knew 
the importance of animal foods. So that tells me there must have been some intervention, some sort of different thing going on. So where it started, I looked in, when did we start thinking meat was bad? Because we thought it was good for all of history. And it started with Seventh-day Adventists and it was sort of this religious thing. And so it goes back to Ellen G. White. There's a whole story here. Um, I can't get into all the details, but it involves John Harvey Kellogg and the I was famous gonna, for Kellogg cereal. was something I wanted to talk about as well. Let's yeah. talk about let's talk about him. Okay, yeah. John Harvey yeah. Kellogg. So he was a product of these Seventh Day Adventists, and the, and he was actually like a protege of Ellen G. White, who was kind of the founder of Seventh Day Adventist religion. She had these visions. This Which was is one time, of the blue zones, if I'm not correct, right? Yeah. So Day that Adventist. later, later, yeah. Loma Linda is one of the blue zones, which is in California, which is a Seventh Day Adventist area. So yes, ultimately it became a quote blue zone, but how it started was that he, she had this vision, she had these visions that meat caused men to be angry and violent and that we need to go back to a garden of Eden diet, which is in the Bible was supposedly fruits and vegetables and, and without meat. And this is a time when, you know, men were drunk and beating women and women didn't have all these rights and it, it was a bad time. And so, and there's also unscientific, this was in the late 1800s. So they didn't really know what was going on. And so they blamed it on meat and that was her idea. And that's kind of what this whole Seventh-day Adventist religion was based on. And, it, and then, so John Harvey Kellogg was indoctrinated as a young boy and all this stuff. And he went on to make all the breakfast cereals and even had this thing called the sanitarium where he'd try to heal people. One thing's being masturbation. He thought that eating very bland foods like these unsweetened, like oat and like grain and cornflake type cereals that that would help make you pure and not have sexual desires. And part of going to the sanitarium was this cleanse of like, you're going to go here and cleanse yourself of your sins and your sexual desires. And part of which you, if I may add was um, for women, when they were trying to, uh, when he was trying to help women stop masturbating um, was to put carbolic, uh, carbolic acid uh, directly onto that female's mm. clitoris with the uh, idea of trying to move her away from sexual pleasure because of course there's acid on her genitals now. So how is that ever going to feel good? So please continue. I just, yeah, wanted, to, yeah, I just no. wanted to make, it's, it's horrendous. This, it's this, a crazy this time. philosophical premise is abhorrent and would absolutely never, I mean, the, these people will be, they will be locked away. Hope, I mean, you know, yeah. hopefully they will be locked away you know, in, uh, in modern in, times, in modern times. Be, but this yeah. is what we, this was in the early 1900s and people didn't know better. And yeah, they had all kinds of wacky stuff going on back then. Mm -hmm. And man, yeah. So that, that, that's a whole side story. There's all these big cereal companies that popped up. This was also Battle Creek, Michigan in this area. And, and ever since then, actually, the Seventh-day Adventists have had major influence on the world and nutrition, and they actually fund a lot of the nutrition studies. They, they put out many textbooks. They have many radio shows and programs, especially in Australia, too. There, there's a big this dietetics institute, whatever it's called, in Australia and some of these other countries. They're all, it's all Seventh-day Adventists. They have huge money and huge influence, and this is what's perpetuating a lot of these myths around nutrition and they, they put out pamphlets and they put out, they, if you go online in Australia to, you know, in your dot, your doctor system, whatever it's called, the EHR, the, you know, the health record system, mm -hmm. they control what's being 
sent out to these doctors to like interventions for certain things like heart disease. Oh, low saturated fat. You need to eat plenty of cereals and whole grain. All this stuff is dictated by this dietetics association. That's really a seventh day Adventist association. So that's a whole rabbit hole. Dr. Gary Fetke and his wife, Belinda actually do a lot of work on that. If people want to look that up, it's Gary and Belinda Fetke, F-E-T-T-K-E. Uh, I interviewed them both for the film and they put out great content, do podcasts on this and all that type of stuff. So go there for more information. But then, so that was in the early 1900s. Then it kind of goes on to the Ansel Keys stuff. They, it, it seems like every decade, there's more of this anti-meat kind of messaging that happens. And it, in the 50s is when it first started with Ansel Keys and President Eisenhower had a heart attack. And so this was a big thing, like, oh man, heart disease wasn't really a problem before. But you know what else was going around at this time in the 1950s? People were smoking in elevators. They're smoking in cars. They got their baby in the backseat. They're smoking cigarettes. The whole car is filled with everyone's smoking. And we also got all these new things like margarine, Crisco, all the new vegetable the three oil. Three out of four doctors recommend Camel. Three, they, they rec <laughs> doctors recommend cigarettes and they recommend <laughs> fake processed oils yeah. instead of butter. Can't believe it's not butter, Crisco, all this stuff. This came about in this time period. They first invented Procter and Gamble, 1914, 1917, somewhere 1912, somewhere around there, and they started rolling out in a big way. 50s, 60s, all these advertising campaigns. So it's no, you know, 40s even. So it's no wonder we, we started having heart disease. We had more people smoke. It was insane smoking, insane amount of these processed oils and trans fats, and more processed foods too. Right? This was the beginning of TV dinners and all this type of stuff. So there's another guy named, uh, oh man, I just forgot his name. He was in England. So he's a British guy that John Yudkin, who had an opposite idea. He's like, hmm, what about if it's all the sugar and flour and, and oil <laughs> that, that came into the culture's diet? Because he was looking at all the British colonies and everywhere he'd see around the world, India and South Africa and all these different places, when they had uh, these three things, the sugar, flour, oil, move in they got disease. So he's like, I don't think it's saturated fat, buddy. We've been eating saturated fat forever. What if it's these three new ingredients that seem to, whenever they come into a society and they get modernized and they get trade and they start, you know, trading their natural foods for sacks of sugar and flour and buckets of oil, then they get sick. Wouldn't that make more sense? And Ansel Keys, he was, you know, he was a domineering personality. He, he won, he basically won this sort of debate and famously used seven countries uh, epidemiology. He, he looked at 22 countries actually, and he looked at how much saturated fat they ate and the cholesterol and their heart disease. So he threw out all the ones that didn't fit, but chose the seven that did. And so then he had this nice little line. It's like, oh, see, the more saturated fat they eat, the more heart disease. And everyone in the US was like, okay, let's go with this. And uh, yeah, I mean, you, you can get more into like motivations and, and why, they chose that because maybe because all the, the big companies that, you know, and all these lobbyists that were even around back then were making all the money off the foods with the sugar, the refined grains and the vegetable oils in them. So I don't think it's great if we blame it on them. We could blame it on meat where meat is, you know, an expensive thing that a lot of people don't make a lot of money on. Right. It's it's there's not like big brands of meat that people can make a lot of money off of. There's not a big profit margin in whole foods. So really, I think it's a lot of this story is about the lobbyists and the money and the advertising and the who can fund the studies 
of who has the profit. And the profit has always been in the processing. That's one of my little taglines. The profit's in the processing. You can, you can get like 10 cents worth of ingredients of, and make it into Lucky Charms and you can sell it for $5 a box. You're trying to sell eggs. It, I, I do. I, I have my company knows the tail. I try to sell meat to people. There's no profit margin, right? You try to sell eggs. It's like, okay, it took me $3 worth of labor and time to grow these eggs. And now I can and the sell facility for and the nurturing of the chicken, everything about and, it. Yeah, yeah. Feeding the caring from. So it's like, okay, it took me, it cost me $3 to make these eggs and I can sell them for three fifty. And then we got lucky charms. It takes 10 cents of subsidized corn wheat and you know oil and whatnot to make it and you sell it for five dollars everyone knows where the profit is everyone's seen i hope everyone's seen these diagrams of all the food companies that own everything you know these webs of craft heinz like it just every single company you've ever heard of is owned by all these big companies that just make all the processed foods and make all the money right it's not like there's oh man you know the guy who makes eggs that guy's a trillionaire no one, no one. There's right. no, Said this no is not how it works. Yeah. So it, you can follow the story from there. It's, it's really a story about money. And, and there's you know, the Rockefellers in there as well. With oh the my God, Rockefeller. And, yeah, Rockefeller Medicine. You can look that up online. There's a little documentary about Rockefeller Medicine and just how they've kind of dictated how the medical system works. And yeah. basically any natural doctors or natural homeopaths or you know anything they used to be called were smeared. They invented the term quack to quack, basically yeah. discredit anyone who wasn't doing. I'm a chiropractor. Very well. I know this story very well. I, I, one of my, <laughs> okay, one of my mentor, one of my mentors, um, he's a, he was, he started practicing in the sixties. And of course, same thing, call them quack. This was like the time where like, you know, the Supreme court, like the chiropractors took the AMA to the Supreme mm -hmm. court. And so he actually built a pond in the front of his home and put ducks in there. And he's like, so anytime anyone walks by and is like, there's a quack, it's like, yep, right there. Right. With uh -huh. the, right. With the I ducks. Yeah. So. I love that. Well, okay. So yeah. So I, I guess I could wrap that up. So yes, there's big money. There's big influence like the Rockefellers that funds all kinds of different initiatives and funds mm -hmm. medical programs and schools and textbooks and yeah. all this type of stuff. And it's, it's pretty obvious, you know, how that, that money works. People understand capitalism. It's just, everyone's trying to make a buck and, and the systems are continued that way. So each, as you get into the sixties, seventies that, you know, it turns into the food pyramid and right. the food pyramid originally had, didn't have six to 11 servings of grain on the bottom, but then the, the grain and, you know, all these lobbyists came in. There's actually even this, a story of how we couldn't even afford to feed people with the old version of the food pyramid that never came out because it, it included animal foods and fresh eggs and milk and meat and vegetables and whatever. And then, and then we're like, well, we have a sub, you know, food program. We have to, we have to, you know, feed people food stamps or the hospitals or the nurseries or the military. So basically, well, let's give them the cheap, the corn, wheat, and soy. Let's give them the six, 11 turns of grains. Basically the story that how it goes on from there, it goes to climate stuff, right? I, I think it's a big smoke screen. We could get into the, the climate, the like methane issues specifically and CO2 and stuff, but the, the high level version is basically food is a very small contributor. Like animal food is a very small contributor in the big picture. Most of it is from big industry, transportation, coal, you know, just all the big industries, even the hospital, like in the medical industry has a bigger carbon footprint than the food industry. You know, the, the, right. 
like the, it's it's very obvious it's from these big fossil fuel oriented things and not just a cow on a field. Like ruminants, you know, started from the beginning of time producing methane. You know, it, it's not a problem. Yeah, this this oversimplified fairy tale that cow farts are warming up the um, the planet is ridiculous. Uh, there's been a couple of really um, not to not to derive everything from memes, but you know, you know, mm-hmm. you see them and you have to have a bit of a chuckle uh, where it's like, you know, people are having avocados in New York City, you know, all year round. It's like, how did that avocado get to you? You know, it 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 drove three thousand miles from Mexico or some. You know, I don't know how far away Mexico yeah, is from something New York. Like that. So, yeah, so you know, it's three thousand, two thousand miles away. So is that potentially adding to the environmental? load. And then you have sort of monoliths like Bill Gates, who self-identifies as a medical doctor and everybody seems Hmm. to be fine with that self-identification. And, you know, he has been a real, I think he's someone to really pay attention to because it's sort of come to light recently. I think that he's one of the largest owners of agricultural land in the States. And he has a vested interest in some of these monocrops, these things like the soy crops, the corn crops and thing. I don't know if he, I don't know if beyond meat or impossible, but I don't know if that's his stuff, but we mm-hmm. hear those names a lot mm-hmm. and it's like pea protein and corn and soy. And, you know, it's one of, one of the things I find really interesting, especially with this, um, this vegan agenda or this plant only agenda mm. is that they, everything wants to look like meat. It's like, let's make a, let's make a burger. You can't have a real burger. So let's make this chemical toxic soup that looks like a burger. Let's mm-hmm. make a tofurkey. Let's make a, you know, if you were, if you want to have plant-based foods, just eat whole plant-based foods. It's really funny. And yes, Bill is like on this agenda of we need to make fake meat. And I, you know, he is invested in some of those big companies you you mentioned, but I'm sure he has more ideas of the future and why he's buying up all this land. And yeah, the largest private holder of agricultural land. It's all very fishy. And it all, it all, even the, the making it into the fake meat, it's like, this just tells me that this is human nature, that humans inherently know they want and meat and they want to eat things that taste like it and they're trying to go around those instincts misguided right this is this misguided thing and you can break down veganism all the three pillars are wrong it's the moral it's like it's environmental and it's the nutritional and each side of those arguments are actually untrue when you look into them so it's kind of sad as they they think they're doing it for these reasons and those are the three main ones. And all three of those are wrong. When, you, when you, it turns out, when you look into them more past the surface level, they're all wrong. So I don't know if you want to go into each of those now or later. But Yeah, let's talk about them now. I mean, we brought them up. I think, I think it's important because I too want animals to be, you know, if we're going to be consuming animals, if we're going to be consuming, you know, fish or chicken or lamb or goat or cat, whatever it is. Mm you know, we want to be thinking about the welfare of these animals, that they lived a good life. I think that that's very important. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things I'll, I'll mention, and we can talk about the pillars is, you know, farmers have known forever that the way that you fatten up an animal is you restrict its movement and you give it things like grains and soy and corn. Mm. And um, I think the humans are no different. You know, we don't have the movement that we used to. And when we're consuming these grains and these uh, 
pro-inflammatory. We can go through the seed oils and the corn and the soy. Mm. That is going to make us sick and obese and inflamed. And in the same way that I think vegans advocate for the animal welfare, um, which I think is a valid argument. I just don't think that the way that they're going about it is is correct. So maybe we can go into uh, each of those pillars if you want now. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I always find that funny. Yeah. I love the irony of that. When the, the people who are most for telling we, we, we shouldn't do this with cows is that's what we should do with humans. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, let's not do that with cows, but yeah, just stuff the humans full of the grains and the, all the cheap, empty calories. It's it's wild. It's wild that people don't see this, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So the pillar. So the well, the nutritional side. We've been talking about some of the nutritional stuff. So, well, uh, the, there was a big study that last year in the the Annals of Internal Medicine that basically said we were wrong about saturated fat. That there's no evidence that saturated fat that eating saturated fat is going to give you heart disease. So that's great. There's five studies and this very big, respectful journal and stuff like this comes out all the time. Just no one hears about it, right? It's not like people are out there reading studies and the media is not covering it because it goes against everything that- Well, they're also sponsored by- Well, yeah, big, who are they sponsored by? Time, right. Exactly. If Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing, salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. LMNT also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. People don't understand that the media is not just a media that gives us news. It's just an outreach. It's just like a PR company basically for big industry. So it could be big pharma, big food, big anything. They just, they pay for it. Not only do they pay for all the ads on it, they're the, they're the owners of it. You know, it's like, you just look at who owns this, who owns that, the media companies, they're all the same people. So it may, I just, that was like the biggest wake up call that I had. And I think people need to have is that the media is not just telling the truth. It's not just what it seems to be. It's not that even the programs that seem to be for people's interest or about reporting are not about reporting. This is all dictated. This is all pre-approved. This is all part of an agenda. Well, we sort, yes. of, we sort of laugh at, you know, North Korea in a way where we're like, yeah. oh, look at the news there. You know, they're always, yeah. you know, plumping, I forget his name, Kim Jong, Un. I Un, um, they're always, you know, they're talking about this great, our dear great leader. And it's like, mm. I actually don't see a huge difference between the yeah. intentions in some of these third world countries and the, the media messaging that we get in first world countries like Canada, like the US, like Europe, you are being fed information that is, um, you know, I post about this on Instagram a lot, like don't become part of the algorithm, you know, like mm. the algorithm you look at, if you, you know, what I forget that it might be the social experiment was the Netflix documentary mm -hmm. where they were talking about 
um, some of these ex Instagram and Facebook uh, employees talking about how they actually are monetizing your attention and your time, that we are actually the products. You know, when it's, when something is free, you are the product. Mm -hmm. And so the, um, the idea that we are, um, that we become the algorithm, like Instagram's going to show you more of what you're, what it determines you're looking at. And so you get into this echo chamber and you think that this is the only thing that exists. And I would say that this, this exists on both, you know, we can, this Mm -hmm. kind of bleeds into politics and many other uh, avenues, but I think it's particularly true with nutrition. If you are someone who truly believes that eating plants is going to be the only way that you are going to save the planet, well, Instagram's going to throw Dr. Joel Kahn and he's going to, they're going to throw all these mm-hmm. other sort of pro um, uh, vegan Instagram accounts for you to follow. And you're going to think like you will become the algorithm. This is, this must be the majority because this is all that I'm seeing. That's a good one. I like that phrase. And I think the only difference between the third world countries or and the US is the third world countries know that it's propaganda and they know the government isn't there to help us. And Americans and Canadians and some other English speaking nations don't realize that. That's what I've learned. I just went to Mexico recently and I talking to locals and they know that the government's corrupt and that the government isn't there that it's not their friend. It's not there to help them. They hundred percent know the government's there to get money that they're just there to get money. They, they're not going to. Yeah. And then the, the funny thing is they just laugh at Americans and I'd put in Canadians and Australians and British as well. Y'all just don't know. (laughs) It's the same thing. It's just, you guys don't understand it. You guys have all the citizens that just believe that the government's there for their own good. And that all these things are for their own good. And they're not just like it is for every other country in the world, but other countries at least realize it. They understand it. And I think that's really funny, this kind of cruel irony of it all. But I, you just got to realize that if you realize that, then yes, you won't be part of the algorithm and you'll make different decisions on your food and your health and your, your own family and your life. So it's just simple as knowing that, right? It's just if you recognize it, then you just know that it's a scam. And that's the first step. So, so that's basically the nutrition story is it's out there. The information's out there. We have good science, you know, showing that animal foods are healthy, that they're not causing cancer. They're not causing disease. I actually interviewed one of the, the PhDs. He's a, he worked for the USDA. So he was like kind of one of those guys, but he was, he was just pro, he wasn't pro meat. He was just pro science. He was on the panel in 2015 that the WHO put together that said those things that meat, bacon is a you know carcinogen and that meat causes cancer. He was on that committee and he was one of the only ones that was reasonable that he, you know, he was like, no, we just need a balanced diet, meat and vegetable, whatever. That's all. This is what we already know. This is what the science shows. He said the whole panel was vegans and vegetarians with an agenda that they picked. I mean, it's no surprise that the WHO picked these certain thing, you know, people to get the desired result and that they did not take his studies that he brought to the table. He brought in better studies than they had. They had a lot of epidemiology and, you know, people might know that that can show only correlation. It cannot show causation, right? It's just, you're just looking at these epidemiological things. He brought in like mechanistic studies and stuff like that, that showed 
that this was not, this is like interventional study. Maybe it was in rats, something like that, that, that meat did not cause cancer. They said, nope, we're not going to look at that. And they just looked at their own studies and they're like, oh yeah, all, all our studies say that, you know, meat's bad and they put it out. So this is just another example of how this nutrition information is being controlled that again, for all of history of eating and animal foods, the new ingredients are the sugar, flour, oil, stuff like that. This is where obviously the problems are coming from. And so that's the nutrition side. The environmental side is something we started getting into already yeah. where, I mean, you could go on forever about the environmental side. I'll, I'll skip to the moral side real quick. The moral side is there's, there's animal deaths, no matter what type of food you eat. And maybe people don't know this, or I think vegans don't want to know this is how many animals die growing crops, growing plant foods. There are millions of animals that die. They're just smaller animals. So it's like, do vegans care about certain animals more than others? Because there's mice and rodents and ground nesting squirrels and baby deer and all kinds of animals and birds and that get and killed. Fish. And the fish, fish that get the runoff. Yeah. Get the runoff through, through the, every step of it from, yes, from just clearing the land that destroys entire ecosystems to make these monocrops to actually getting harvested and chopped up in combines to starving to death. Once the, once the, the, the field is harvested and all the, their food source disappears, now all these animals starve to death. This is something I didn't know about until recently until I started visiting ranchers and talking to farmers. It's like, yeah, there's millions. In Australia, this guy was like millions of dead mice and all these smaller animals that starve to death, starve to death. Instead of a cow, you can feed a person, you can feed a lot of people with one cow and they get a bolt to the head and are, don't even know what happened. They're dead. But then there's millions of animals that have to starve to death to grow the corn, soy, wheat, whatever. So death is part of life. Uh, I think a lot of the problem is people are, especially the vegans are disconnected from this whole process. They're usually in cities. They usually don't understand, you know, the food system that there are nature system, that there's a circle of life and that for something to live, something must die. So, I mean, you can go on forever about that. The, the moral side, it just doesn't work. And, and then you're left with the environmental. I had uh, Rob Wolf uh, on the podcast and we were talking about his book, Sacred Cow. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he said, which I thought was profound, um, was that in some countries, um, women are legally unable to own real estate. They're not able to own land and mm. they can own life, but they can own livestock. Mm. So it is in some countries, the sole way that these women provide for their families, that they how they obtain social status and how they feed their children. And so if you have this, uh, you know, Eurocentric, call it white North American, you know, cis white gender, you know, mm -hmm. idea that everyone everywhere should be vegan I think that it's overly simplistic. And of course, some of the terrain that these women, if you think about the Middle East, uh, for example, some of the terrain that these women inhabit, they're rocky, they're grasslands, they're hilly. They can't do anything other than raise goat and sheep and camels and, mm -hmm. you know, and be able to trade those or barter those, or maybe it's money or, or whatever. Um, they can't have monocrops like soy and corn there, they, they, but they can raise animals. Um, 
you know, not to all the things you've been talking about with nutrition and environmental, this sort of the chemical fertilizer model is the only way to go. This vegan model is, I think, oversimplistic. And in this specific instance, you know, after, you know, he said he was talking about, you know, some of these countries, the only way that women actually survive is -hmm. through animal husbandry. I was like, well, you know, to be vegan, to think that there's one diet, like this veganism is right for everybody is just sexist in this way, because we're not accounting for some of the socioeconomic and societal changes and norms that are not, that are not native Mm -hmm. to the U S or Canada or most of Europe. That's a great point. And I pulled another stat from, again, one of these big world organizations that I maybe don't even agree with, but they said the poorest billion people rely on animals the most. Think about that. The poorest billion people in the world rely on animal. This is like their way of living. It's exactly what you just said. This is their way of living. I saw this firsthand in Africa. Their one cow that they had was their one good source of nutrition for the day. Yes, they had to rely on ugali, which is the you know corn flour, and they would like just grind it up and and have water with water, and just have this porridge of corn flour and water. And if they didn't have their cow, they would die. Because that corn flour and water is not going to sustain you long-term. Like you will die, you have malnutrition and die. They're, they, the cow, the one cow that maybe they even have to split with other people, that's where they, they get their life-sustaining nutrition. So yeah, people don't think about this at all, right? It's, it's like usually the people that they're just in San Francisco in a coffee shop getting a soy latte. And they oat, try oat to milk with oat milk or oat soy. milk. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oat milk. That's a newer version. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they're, they're, they're trying to like make print <laughs> announcements about how the world works. It's, it's really funny. You know, my, my children, their grandparents are from Greece. And so they left Greece, uh, in the sixties, you know, the economy there was, you know, collapsed. Mm-hmm. They were like, they came to Canada for a better life, but they grew up in rural areas of Greece, like in the hills and they would raise pigs. And then one pig, I can, I remember, um, uh, their grandmother telling me, you know, like that one pig would feed them, like they would salt it, you know, they didn't have refrigeration. So they'd like salt it. They put in like a kind of a cold area and that one pig would last them the entire winter. And it was a family of six, you know, Mm. it's like the parents and four kids. And, you know, and maybe you could make the argument, like they were very poor. They came from nothing but they raised pigs, they sold pigs, you know, that, that's how they were able mm. to survive, you know, some of the winters and be able to barter, you know, they had chickens and stuff. So they trade chickens for this and, you know, they trade, you know, whatever it is that they mm. were trying to, um, whatever they needed. And I, I think that, um, yeah, it's like this, and, and, you know, I have friends that are in San Francisco that uh, I'm thinking of right now and I have, you know, mad love for them. Um, mm. Not necessarily vegan, but I, I, mm-hmm. I, I just, I, I think that, in the app, and there's a whole other conversation here around, you know, sort of this idea that nutrition has become like religious, like this religious, almost cult-like, you know, root word of culture, cult. Uh, and sometimes when we, and maybe this is a slightly different topic, I just want to share with you and, mm-hmm, and sort of mm-hmm. see what you think. But as we've seen less and less reliance on religion, you know, over the course of, as we become more modern, you know, we see you know, the Christian, uh, you know, str- you know, the Christian re- struggling to sort of stay relevant. 
uh, it's been replaced with a different kind of religion, which in some ways is nutritional science, right? And, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I know you have an absolute love for epidemiology uh, and, <laughs> and the and the studies that come from it. But in in some ways it's become a, a, a an identifier, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm a vegan, right? Like there's this joke and I'm going to get death threats for saying this, but um, you know, there's like this joke that I've heard. It's like, how do you, you know, um, you know, there's a vegan and an atheist that walk into a bar. How do you know? It's the first thing that they tell you, you know, it's like yeah. the first thing that they tell you, right. From meeting them. And it's sort of like an, uh, it's like an identifier. Like I'm a vegan. This is what I stand for. And like I've said before, I think that the nutritional, environmental, and ethical concerns, like the three pillars of veganism, I think are important. But like you said, the approach that everybody should be eating this one diet that we haven't been doing for millennia, for millions of years, uh, I think is short-sighted. Is short-sighted. Yes. And I, I think you're right too. There, there's something to do with these, this modern society and with people have lost religion they've lost family values i think a lot a lot of this stuff it's like we we want to like we were talking before about the testosterone going down it's like yes everything about the society is is taking away manhood womanhood strong family values religion all this stuff is is being eroded in society and that everything the opposite of that is being propped up and it's very suspicious to me very suspicious. I see. I don't think there's like, you know, the secret cabal that's like doing it all, but it's like some, there's movements being made. Like you can see the tides being shifted in one direction and it only seems to be in that one direction, right? We were talking about everything we're talking about. It's why is it always in this direction? Why is it always towards the plant-based side, towards the processed food, towards more healthcare costs and medications and pharmaceuticals towards less testosterone, towards less female, you know, estrogen dominance, like everything is just going the opposite away. And it, it's becoming clear that there's something going on. you right. Like I'm, I'm not saying what, but I know something's up Yeah, because it, it's going in one way. Well, let's talk about declining levels of testosterone. That's something I wanted to make sure that we talk about. And this is a, this is a, um, an area that I'm becoming more and more interested in. I have, I have sons that I'm raising. So of course this is of, you know, concern for my children and their future. Mm-hmm. But I think just as a general comment, what, and I was saying this to you in the pre-chat, what I'm, what I'm, what we're generally seeing, and this mm-hmm. has been, uh, I think, uh, I forget the author's name. Uh, the Countdown is the book. Her name is Dr. Shauna. Oh, what's her last name? Oh. I'll make sure. I think we'll, I will put yeah. in the show notes. She was on Joe Rogan mm-hmm. talking about how in the last 50 years, testosterone levels in men have declined by 50 or 60%. And the same is true with sperm levels as well. So we're seeing like sperm counts uh, declining. And then when we talk about sperm count, of course, we're not just talking about the number of sperm, but we're talking about the quality of viable sperm. Like we're seeing a gluttonation, like warped, you know, sperm with double heads or without a tail or, you know, whatever. They're unable to uh, do their intended job. And I've done podcasts before where, you know, I've talked about, you know, men are the seed and women are the soil, right? So we have mm-hmm. to protect the seed and we also have to nurture the soil. And so with this, with this, uh, you know, um, uh, inclusion of seed oils and grains, um, uh, we mentioned, in, you mentioned insulin resistance a while back, uh, but we can circle mm-hmm. back to it now. Why do you think that we are seeing this declining testosterone mm-hmm in men or maybe more accurately an estrogenization of men. Yeah. Um, why do you think that we're seeing that? Or do you have any thoughts on no, it? No, well, I do. It's multifaceted. 
Uh, there's another great person who researches this is Dr. Anthony Jay, who wrote the book Estra Generation. Hmm. So probably online with Dr. Shanna. I think I, I heard half of that podcast. Uh, I need to finish it. But it's all of modern society. Really, it's, it's all of the it's kind of everything. A lot of it has to do with the food. That's the chemicals. It's the it's everything. That's the problem is that it's everywhere. It's in plastics. I guess most people know about, you know, avoiding certain BPA and all this stuff. It goes way beyond BPA and it's still everywhere. And yes, they make different versions and it's like, oh, this is BPA free, but okay, well, what is it? You know, it's just like one molecule off. And these are all leaching estrogen in, they are, or having, yeah, estrogen antagonists or, or testosterone antagonists, all this different stuff that happens in the body, endocrine disrupting chemicals. It's in anything though, even in the line lines of can, like the liner of cans, like in the soda can, it has it in the liner to protect it. It's in car interiors. Like if you get a new car, that smell, that is all these chemicals that are in the fabrics and all this stuff that are like off gassing into your body. When you get into your hot car, it's in the water. It's in the foods you eat. Soy, particularly soy-based products have tons of this, these estrogens, everything about it, everything about our society. So, I mean, I don't even know um, how, what, what to I know really Sean do. Baker likes to call them soy boys, which I, I think so, is really, <laughs> But it so, makes sense. So, it's yeah. like they, people are headed that way. It's like there is this feminization happening because of the way we live. So the best thing to do, yeah, is to start being aware of all of them. And yeah, you have to start using different kinds of pans and different, not using, you know, you don't heat things up in plastic. And uh, hopefully, you know, people know some of this stuff or you've talked about on other episodes, but one of the biggest things you can do, yes, is change the diet because what you eat is going to be a huge factor. If you think of the volume of food that goes into your body, that that's a big determinant of what you know, what happens with your hormones and what happens, your body has to process all those foods. And so, yes, if you're eating these soy, but if you're eating all these like fake soy products and refined grains and all these different seed oils, these all basically are affecting you and your hormones. So the, the best way to, to counteract that is to stop eating them. And it actually makes a big difference pretty quickly. And also I'd say men or, or women too, get out there and lift some heavy weights, you know, like do some exercise. Like th there's a lot of good research on boosting, not only avoiding estrogen and different things that will, you know, lower your testosterone, but ways to actively gain and uh, produce more testosterone, like, you know, mm -hmm. ancestral living, getting out there. Yeah. doing things. And I, I would say that often the low T, the low testosterone rarely has anything to do with the testosterone. Like I had a friend reach out to me recently and was like, okay, I'm, you know, my T is like testosterone is low. I'm going to start taking um, supplementation. Like when should I do it? And I was like, well, why don't we actually look, let's look at your fasting insulin levels. Let's look at your environment. As you were saying, the EDC, endocrine, endocrine disrupting uh, chemicals. Let's look at your movement. Like what is your, what is your neat look like? What's your non-exercise activity? How many steps are you getting per day? And you know, you just said lift heavy weights. Yes. When men and women lift heavy shit, like if you want metabolic health, <laughs> yeah. you're not going to end for the ladies. You're not going to get bulky. I promise. I lift heavy weights. I'm not bulky. Lifting weights I mean, we, I mean, metabolic health, yes. But the other thing that lifting weights does, which I think is often uh, really underemphasized, is the impact that it has on your mental 
health and your mental resilience and your ability to do hard things when it's uncomfortable. Um, and you know, I don't, I, I realize I'm getting on my soapbox, so I'm going to, I'm going to step oh, down. I I'm going to step down. It. But I think that when you face the weights, you know, what's going to be like, I did legs this morning, like destroyed my legs, like tomorrow mm-hmm. stairs is not going to be uh, a good thing. But I know mm-hmm. that that helps my, it helps me do hard things in my business. It helps me as a mother. It helps me as a parent. It helps me in every aspect of my life. Um, because it is, I mean, just like the name suggests, it's training your resistance. Um, and you know, you have world events like a pandemic where we've seen mental health, like just in the tube. And I think that if we were able to go all in on something, I mean, if there's one thing, hopefully if there's two things you're taking away from this conversation, it's eat meat, Mm. uh, at least sometimes and, and lift Mm. weights because those and speak, you know, kind of coming back to this idea of, of testosterone in men, I often talk about, you know, there's two ways that you build muscle in the gym and in the kitchen, right? So you build muscle in the gym, you tear apart the muscle, you know, you mm-hmm. rip up the fibers, the sarcomeres, the sarcomeres heal afterwards, but you can also create a, with a protein bolus like meat, um, you can also initiate muscle protein synthesis, which is just naturally going to increase your testosterone as a male or a female. Um, because you require testosterone to maintain those muscles. Um, so with that, uh, okay, I, I promise it. I'm, oh, I'm done now. I no, just- <laughs> I love it. I, no, just, just lift away. It's, it's more, it's, it's everything though. It, it helps you metabolically. It helps you mentally, but it's even just signaling to your body to get bigger, that you're strong, that you're powerful, that boosting testosterone, all this stuff, boosting your confidence, everything about it is good. So we'll leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. So let's actually, I just want to touch on meat consumption, protein consumption, Mm -hmm. and this uh, restricting mTOR. So this Mm. growth pathway, which is activated by protein Mm -hmm. as an anti-aging strategy. And this kind of comes back to the uh, seven day Adventist. It comes back to sort of the blue zones um, and sort of the research of Walter Longo and others where they talk about part of the reason why some of these blue zones, we have populations that reach centenarian status, super centenarian status is because they are restricting their protein. Mm-hmm. And there's two things that confuse me about it. And I want, I would love for you to mm-hmm. comment on both. The first is as we age, if you're not doing anything like resist resistance training, you become naturally more sarcopenic. It's like use it or lose it. Right. Mm -hmm. And the muscle itself becomes more anabolically resistant as we age. So you actually need more protein to overcome Mm -hmm. that resistance, to drive that muscle growth. So that's always been a point of confusion for me. And the second thing is that, um, I don't know that you can pull apart the restricted protein from the other benefits that these communities all have, which is a very strong sense of community. They are always sitting together and having their meals. They have a low level of activity. They walk, like you go to, uh, I believe it's Sardinia or maybe it's not Sardinia. What's the, no, it's oh, Sardinia. I think, it's, it, is. Yeah, I think it is, or Icaria might be part of it. In Gre- yeah, so they're up and down the mountains all day. Yeah. Like you have 90 year olds that are tending to mm-hmm. goats and, you know, um, so I, I feel like potentially some of the confounding 
um, research in their study where they say, oh, it's because they have a lot of lentils or they have a lot of pasta or they, they don't have a lot of meat-based proteins, the mental resilience and the, inflama- the inflammation spectrum that they have is potentially attenuated because they have support from their community. They feel like they belong somewhere and they have other anti-inflammatory um, uh, uh, inputs like low level activity all day long. It's hundred percent correct on both of those. And my good friend, Mary, who I went to Mexico with has been traveling to different blue zones and debunking them. So I think you're very correct that there's way more confounding factors. And yes, they, she, she's witnessed them, these 80, 90 year old people tromping up and down the mountains, you know, they're going up these stairs just to get down to the market and back every day, every day. They have a sense of purpose. Community is great. Like you said, but even a purpose, like where they're not just retired and they just do nothing. They're still there going out and cooking for their family or, you know, they're involved in the family life. And that isn't so much here. We we stick people in like nursing homes and stuff like that. So of course, like why, why would you live a long time if you're stuffed in some nursing home? So but what Mary's doing, and I'm trying to go to some of these blue zones as well, but partly is showing that they do eat a lot of meat. You know, part of the, the blue zone studies are wrong. It's Dan Buettner wrote the book and he had this vegetarian agenda and it's been debunked by many, many people. You can just Google, you know, blue zones debunked. You'll find tons of articles about, well, one of them, he went to the, he went and visited them during Lent. He went and visited the, I think it might've been the Ikaria of during the month that they didn't eat meat, the one month that they took off for Lent. And then he's like, oh, wow, no one's eating meat here. Mary just went, they're eating lamb from nose to tail. They're eating the brains and the bones and the liver and the all day they are eating meat and different animal foods and fish. And they well, they eat all- fish on Fridays. I know like just having a Greek um, family, I know that fit, like fish is Fridays. Fish. Yeah, absolutely. And especially yeah. on this island, it's like, yeah, they don't have a ton of cows on it, but they have a ton of, they have goats and they have lamb. And so, so part of the story is that it's wrong, right? It's just, it's another, just one of these epidemiological things where, yeah, it's just based on someone going around and just seeing what they wanted to see. Partly it's because of all the things you mentioned is, they have such good lifestyle factors with the movement and the community. Part of it is that they're eating whole foods. And it's sunny really. where they live. So sunny, <laughs> everything sunny. about it. Yeah. Sunny, beautiful, yeah. but, but, but they're eating whole foods too. It's like, I actually don't have a problem with any type of diet. If it's based on whole foods, you don't have to eat tons of meat every day, yes. but it, it, it doesn't matter. Like they are getting enough protein, even in Okinawa, they, they're, it's like billed as this like total plant-based thing in the Okinawans and you know, they're part of the blue zones. Well, you look at the Okinawans, they regard pork as a longevity food. They eat pork. It's a special food to them that they eat as often as possible. And they eat tons of fish. They have tons of seafood. So yeah, maybe it's not meat, but they are getting lots of animal protein and you know, they're eating sweet potatoes. So the traditional Okinawan diet would be sweet potatoes, not rice. Actually, it's just one of these sweet potatoes, vegetables, seafood, and some pork. And so, yeah, that's a perfectly good diet with a good amount of protein. So a lot of that stuff is sort of debunked. Then we talk about this, the more scientific, the mTOR stuff and like this Walter Longo. And I, I really have a problem with him and 
David Sinclair is a little bit on the same page as this like kind of plant-based slant towards the like aging research. And uh, I read a great book called Eat Like the Animals. So it's uh, another thing we wanted to talk about is protein leverage hypothesis. Yes. Is uh, Robin Heimer and Simpson is these two scientists that did a lot of the research on, they discovered the protein leverage hypothesis. And they actually wrote about how great protein is, especially they said for, you know, pregnant women, for children, teens growing up and for old people. They're like, protein is amazing. Protein is great. Another thing, like you were saying that it's harder to keep your muscle mass when you're older. It's also harder to digest protein when you're older. You, you lose some of the enzymes that help you digest the protein. So you actually need more protein just to get the same amount of protein as you did when you're younger. So anyone who's saying otherwise is wrong. It's insane. Old people need more protein. And so going back to these two researchers, so they admit how amazing protein is for mothers and young people and old people. It's illegal and somehow, I think, to be vegan. Isn't it illegal to raise your children at some countries? Oh, in certain think, countries, yes. Absolutely. Britain, certain countries, it's, it's yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And kids are dying out there in, in sometimes from being vegan. So, so, okay. So these scientists, it's great for everyone. Protein's great for all the younger periods of your life, for growth periods, like being pregnant, for, well, for bodybuilders, people know and for old people. Yet somehow they say it's bad for just middle-aged people, which is just absurd to begin with. But what I found out is another nutrition nerd named Marty Kendall kind of dug deep into the research that they did. This is what Walter Longo, I think, is basing a lot of his thoughts on, is this research, right? This is a lot of the protein research is done by these two scientists. And what he found out was they actually kind of falsified their data. That they, they based this all in these rodent studies. And what was happening is they threw out a whole bunch of data of all these mice that died on the very low protein diet. So think about that for a second, because how you do science is not throw out data, especially not data that basically shows that low protein is bad. So they, they just had all these mice die from a, a low protein diet. They threw it out. They didn't include it in their analysis. And then they, they were, then they came to the conclusion that protein is good and all these times, but not good for middle age, right? So they somehow concluded that protein wasn't good in your middle age. And that's why you should avoid it. And that, you know, kind of so led by to throwing this out that, So by throwing by out throwing that out, garbage, yeah. So you get the statistically significant, the p-values less than 0 0.05, and then you get the, you get- Just imagine that, like that, how significant that data is that they threw out. The low yeah. protein diet killed the malnutrition to the point of death that these animals, these mice had. And so this guy, Marty Kendall, I think you can look it up. It's like, eat like the animals, Marty Kendall. And you could see he put all this information together. When he put that, the information back in, and we put that data back in, there was no downside to protein, basically. So I, I also like to think about it like mTOR. What raises mTOR? Maybe protein does raise mTOR, but wait a second, maybe that's a good thing. It's not always good to do anything all the time, right? It's not good to, you can't lift weights all day, every day. Your body would like deteriorate. You would have no time to recover. You can't drink all the water in the world. You drown. You, people die of hypernutremia, I think it's called. So if you, yes, you don't want mTOR all the time, but you do need mTOR because yes, it is a, a stimulating growth hormone. And that's a good thing if you're doing it correctly and strategically and so there's two sides of the story. One side is that it can be good in certain doses. So if I'm going to go lift weights, I'm going to go do my 
I do actually push day and pull day instead of like leg day. So my push day is going to be all my push exercises today. And I'm going to eat a bunch of steak, right? I'm going to eat some steak and some fat and whatever else. And it's going to, I'm in a growth mode, right? I'm like, I'm ready to grow my muscle. I, I don't want to be sarcopenic. I don't want to end up with low muscle mass and waste away in old age. So I'm going to build muscle. So for those few hours, I'm, I'm in growth mode. I'm lifting weights and I'm eating protein and then I'm not for a while. And then I will, again, I'm not eating like tons of protein all day, every day. Maybe bodybuilders do that, but I think they might be sacrificing their longevity a little bit, but I think these guys know that, right? They're taking steroids. They're doing yeah. all kinds of stuff. Yeah. If you ask them, Hey, you're going to die 10 years earlier. They're like, yeah. So what? I'm gigantic and I'm winning competitions. So I would not eat, yeah, six boluses of protein every, you know, four hours, whatever it is, you know, six times per day. So like every four hours eating this big bolus of protein. And so this is the other side of the story. What else is raises mTOR is other things like high sugar diets and high, you know, these. Well, this is the thing. Yeah. I'm glad you said this because carbohydrates also, also jack mTOR's pathway up like nobody's business. Exactly. Jacks your insulin, your blood sugar, your mTOR, all it's the same thing. So again, it's this insane cognitive dissonance or just just this bias that they people can't figure out that they're telling people that mTOR means bad because of mTOR. And I'm saying, okay, well, I'm only eating meat two times a day. I eat two large meals. And so I'm only raising my mTOR and I and I'm using it as a good thing, right? Because I'm I'm lifting weights, I'm going for walks, I'm doing these type of things. I, I I do want to grow my muscles. These guys, a lot of these people eating these plant-based diets, they're eating like four to six times a day because the food is so unsatiating. And you, so now they're eating these carbohydrate loads, sugary low, all this stuff. They're raising, raising mTOR more than me. Maybe it's not as high as meat, but they're doing it a lot more. They're also messing with their blood sugar and insulin and all this other stuff. So this is the force to the trees thing. This is just people going down there bias in, you know, doing research and only seeing what they want to see. They don't understand these nuances that are very clear to me that I, yes, I do understand mTOR and I do eat meat and I know exactly what I'm doing. And I, I believe that I'm doing it in a healthy way. That's going to allow me to live longer because of that. Well, I, I agree with you in that. I think that mTOR should be activated cyclically, right? As you're saying, it should be activated all day, every day, because then you do have, uh, some of the, you know, unintended consequences. Like when you're always in growth mode, like everything grows and we don't want everything growing all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, but I certainly believe that we do need to be activating it, especially, especially in middle life, which are middle age, which I am middle aged, I guess, you know, if you're looking at the data and I'm in Uh my forties, right. So Uh I want to be thinking about how, like, I'm already thinking about how I'm going to be the favorite grandmother. Like I Mm want to be able to lift up these little babies, run after them at the park, get down on the floor and play, you know, whatever games Mm -hmm. they're playing. And in order for me to do that, I need to think about flexibility, proprioception and mobility. So I need to be thinking about my connective tissue. And of course I need to be thinking about my leg strength and the big muscles in my body, legs, glutes, back. Right. So uh, very, very important. I think um, to be activating the mTOR pathway and other, and other growth pathways as well, um, through resistance training, through protein consumption. Um, yeah. So, uh, we're, we're in agreement there. 
Um, so we've been talking a lot about um, sort of what's wrong with the world. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, and I want to give my audience some hope uh, in terms of how they can um, sort of take back their power. Maybe they've delegated it to the government. They've delegated it to the food pyramid. They've been, mm. you know, doing the Uber Eats. They haven't been getting in the sun. And, you know, what would be um, some simple actionable items that you might, you know, if someone came to you and said, listen, mm-hmm. I'm totally doing this wrong. Like I'm eating yeah. the processed foods. I'm doing the Uber eats, sitting on my butt all day, not getting enough sun. Um, what would be some simple actionable items that you might give to someone to begin to change, uh, mm. you know, maybe they're pre-diabetic. What would be some, where would you start? What would be some easy things, some actionable things that anybody who's listening can do? I'll, I'll start with my easiest one that's the best. Okay. Take the diet you're already eating, whatever it is. You like certain foods, right? I'm sure people have their preferences. They like certain fruits or they like certain vegetables. They like certain meats. They like certain things. Take out, leave it how it is. Take out the processed stuff. There's a certain amount that's processed. It could be bread. It could be tortillas. It could be dessert. It could be the bun. It could be the French fries. Replace that with extra animal foods, extra protein foods. So it's, it's this one switch. So you're taking what you already like. You don't have to drastically change your entire life, right? Just take what you already like. So say you like chicken. Well, let's eat the whole, well, for one, I hope you're eating the whole chicken, right? You're eating like the skin and you're eating the dark meat and you're getting all these nutrients. Hopefully you're even making broth and you're eating maybe even the organs. So now if you like chicken, let's just eat more of that. Instead, so like throw out the, tor- the tortilla, especially if it's some processed flour tortilla in a bag from a grocery store that sucks. Throw that out and just eat more chicken, right? Throw out, stop eating. You can even do it with Uber Eats. Okay, the meal comes with a burger and French fries and a soda. Obviously, we're not getting the soda. You can drink water. Instead of the fries, you can get an extra patty on the bun. You know what I mean? Like just replace your empty or lettuce carbs. wrap. They have lettuce wraps. Like they have lettuce just, wraps. So, but I'm yeah, not, yeah. it's beyond just lettuce wrap. Yeah. People know the lettuce wrap ta- trick. I'm saying, yeah, that's a good trick. Absolutely. That's a classic trick is get the lettuce wrap instead of the bun. But I'm saying go, go beyond that. Double your protein while subtracting the processed food and the processed food. It's not like I'm just like this insane maniac that hates all carbs. I hate all empty calories. And what these, a lot of these processed carbs are just empty calories. This is empty nutrition. This is what we talked about in the beginning when we started doing agriculture and, you know, pyramids, like the slaves were relying on a bunch of grains and they had malnutrition and we, all this type of stuff. You don't, you're replacing these empty processed foods that are probably inflammatory and have the seed oils and sugar, all this stuff with more protein. That's the simplest intervention that anyone can do. Is just up the protein. If you're upping the protein, you're going to be more full. You're going to be satiated for a long time and you're not going to want to eat more trash later. You're not going to want to snack. I, I just think it's so powerful to up your protein. This is the protein leverage stuff that we kind of glossed over. But but part of what the, the scientists Robin Heimer and Simpson found out is that the more protein you eat, I'm not saying we're eating like 60% protein in your diet, but the more protein you eat, the better. The, all animals, what they found, all mammals, they found actually in in insects, all animals really that they studied that they eat to a certain protein target. So if you give say rats, 
mice, a bunch of food that is diluted of protein and just has base diluted protein kind of means empty calories, right? So it's a processed food diet that someone would eat in, as a, you know, in the modern world, you, they're going to eat more to get the same amount of protein because you just diluted their food because this, the food that there is available to them is low protein. They have to eat more of it just to get that protein target. And this is very consistent in the animal world. They did it in uh, insects, even like grasshoppers or cricket, crickets, all the way up to humans, is that you eat to a certain protein and I think nutrient target. So by people, I think everyone, and there's good data showing it, is I think everyone's not eating enough protein. Our proteins went down you know, from about 15% to 12.5%, I think it is, over the last 40 years, something like that, as a whole. And what that does is now you have to eat more to get the same amount of protein and nutrients. And therefore you can explain the entire obesity epidemic with just the fact that as a, a world, we'd lowered our protein intake. And so really I, I just encourage people to eat more protein, especially animal protein that's bioavailable and complete. And so if you're getting rid of empty carbs, empty fats as well, so empty calories, you're adding more protein, it's better than just getting a lettuce wrap because you're now you're getting two patties and a lettuce wrap. And now you're full all day. This is like, it's a hard concept for some people because dieting culture is usually based around feeling hungry and having small meals, yeah. restriction. I'm saying lean into meals and protein and fat and feeling satiated. And I've seen so much success. I work with a doctor. Uh, we work with Dr. Gary and stuff at Sapien and seen this a million times, not a million times. That's a huge exaggeration, but all across the board, all walks of life, all nationalities, all ages. If you start eating more protein, you start eating fewer meals, you're full for longer. You stop snacking, you stop eating. You just naturally start eating better. So that's my main intervention that, that anyone can do immediately and without even getting into, I didn't say anything about plant. Oh, I, I kind of said just eat more animals, but I didn't, you know, I'm saying eat the same fruits and vegetables you enjoy. I'm not saying anything other than replacing empty carbs with full or empty calories with full, complete nutrition and protein and fat from animals. And typically, you know, the more protein dense a food is, the more nutrient dense it is as well. Like there's been uh, lots of comparison. And of course you, you can look at this from the muscle meat, but you can also look at this from an organ perspective, like the zinc and the selenium and the, the folate and all the, you know, the B spec, the B vitamins, um, uh, very rich, uh, when we look at, um, animal proteins as well. So just in the last moments that I have with you here, I want to respect your time. I know we've been chatting uh, now mm -hmm. and this is, I feel like I could talk to you for a really long time on this, mm -hmm. but uh, when is the movie, when is the documentary coming out? Do you have a scheduled um, release oh, date yeah. or you're still working on it? What, what's going on? with oh, well, we, we just work on it every day. We don't have a date. It's kind of just a small team passion project. No one's getting paid. Uh, it's just, it's taking as long as it takes. And we have an amazing team. It's going really well, but it's just not going to be till next year. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, we have a distribution company that's going to help us get it on Netflix and get it worldwide. So it should be all over the world, but it's just going to. If anybody wants long. to support you and the film, is there anywhere I can direct them in the show notes? Any yeah, foodlies.org. Foodlies.org. I do all my social media under foodlies. So you can just search on YouTube or Instagram or whatever and search for foodlies. And yeah, we do need help. Any 
any contributions. We have some good perks and stuff for people who contribute to the film, but it all just goes to the professionals that help us do the motion graphics because we're going to make this thing really good. Uh, Just top quality custom soundtracks, like really high quality stuff to basically put together all the eight years of research I've done into one thing that you can show your friends and family, right? Like people listening probably know a lot of this stuff maybe, or, you know, maybe you don't, but you need to get things all in one place, right? To really let people know the whole story because they're not going to go out and do read all the studies and go to conferences and all that. So that's what we're trying to do basically is get it all into one audio visual thesis. <laughs> one place. Yeah. One place. Well, it has been such a treat uh, speaking to you, Brian. Thank you for all the work uh, that you do. And I know that this is going to be really useful for my audience. I have a whole sort of, you know, uh, breadth of like it's mainly females that uh that listen to us but we have a lot of clinicians that uh that chime in a lot of doctors and um i think you know the through line for all of my listeners is how can i be better how can i get better mm-hmm. and really love the actionable items that you shared and hope that this is going to be illuminating for many well stephanie thank you so much Hey, I know that a lot of clinicians listen to this podcast and what I am seeing is that female doctors and female healthcare practitioners are in very high demand right now. And that's mainly because thankfully women are finally waking up to the fact that we are not little men and we need a female practitioner with her lived experience and understanding of female physiology who can understand the unique ebbs and flows uh, of a woman through the course of her life, and of course, the female psyche and how it is different for women. And this is why I believe in the next few years, we're going to see a dramatic shift from generic care, uh, the me search that is primarily done on men to female specific protocols. And I am committing to be at the forefront of it. But here's the thing, I cannot do it alone. As they say, it takes a village. And this is why I want you to join the movement with me. Together, you and I can transform the lives of thousands of women. And I want you to join me in making a bigger impact on your patients' lives and their outcomes. In this process, you will grow your practice while still having enough time for your family and your social life, and of course, the things that matters. My pledge to you, if you are a female healthcare provider or clinician, is that I want to personally coach you on delivering incredible results through my proven methods while you balance your career and life. This is all about working smarter, not harder, because you can and should have both. You can and should have what I like to call FU money, (laughs) which is the money that you can use to invest as you please, whether that's in your personal life or your professional life, and that you should have the time to spend with the people that matter most to you. So if this is appealing to you and you want to have a greater impact, more freedom and more income, let's have a conversation. In January, I will be working with a small cohort of female doctors, and I'd love to invite you to be one of them. Just head on over to hellobetty.club, that's H-E-L-O-B-E-T-T-Y.club forward slash the dash estima dash 
certification. I'll have a clickable link in the show notes uh, in case that is too long for you to write out right now. And um, you can DM me on Instagram. You can uh, send us a um, uh, an email, any questions. That's hellobetty.club forward slash the dash estima dash certification to be one of my practitioners that I work with this January. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast better with Dr. Stephanie is for general information only and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare providers, advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 